0: This is a podcast from Art and Reality. The Role of Visual Culture in the Post-Independent State. This University College Dublin symposium examined the role of visual culture in constructing and critiquing the Irish Free State and national identity in the aftermath of political independence. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018 and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art History and Cultural Policy and Nival, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was funded by UCD of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online. In this podcast, Dress in Our Boys in the Independence Period, circa 1910 to 1940, a paper by Hilary O'Kelly.
1: So Dress as Much as Language, Education or Prayer – was a crucial vehicle for inculcating the ideologies of dominant power in Ireland in the period before and after independence. Long dismissed as superficial, clothing is now understood as a key site of discourse for power relations of gender and age, as well as social, cultural and political status. While dress itself is constructed with needle and thread, its wider meaning is also constructed through context, word and image, it was this combination of narrative, picture and text that gave children's illustrated literature a compelling allure, both for the children and for those seeking to mould them to a particular image. The aim of this paper is to examine how such illustrated literature for boys was an integral part of the apparatus of institutional and commercial visions <coughs> of how youth should be formed visually, mentally and materially in Ireland in the independence years. What it aims to suggest is that the dress in Our Boys, along with that in other illustrated literature for children, provides unwitting evidence of conflicting attitudes across a range of institutions, from the state and educational to the commercial and familial. On the one hand, they advocate a separate Irish identity, while at the same time endorsing established Victorian norms of manners and dress. They encourage buying Irish to support an Irish Ireland, but the Irish goods themselves, often support norms and values shared with England. It advocates tradition, while the evidence suggests that modernity is the essential quality for inclusion in the wider world. Building on the timeless objective of mingling instruction with delight, the Christian Brothers founded Our Boys in 1914. Their aim was to develop what Michael Flanagan has described as an Irish heroic archetype that held faith and fatherland as its highest ideal. Their success lay in a pragmatic recognition of the need to balance that central tenet of Irish nationalism with equal attention to commerce and social advancement. While the founding mission of the Order was to attend to the educational needs of the poor, Elaine Sisson has shown that in fact many middle-class Catholic boys were sent to be educated at the Brothers with the promise of a secure position with the civil service, banks or insurance companies. As part of their agenda of social mobility through education, the brothers also published This Christian Politeness and Counsels for Youth, a handbook of manners running to many editions over almost 100 years and elucidating imperatives of social decorum, behaviour, address and dress. In Independence Ireland, political and popular culture drew on the ancient past to proclaim difference, while at the same time aimed by reinforcing contemporary norms to claim credentials for participation in world affairs. In this irreconcilable discourse, ancient Irish dress was greatly disadvantaged through a haziness around both its historical form and its current role, especially when set against the intense clarity of modern idioms of attire. Through a sample of images, texts and ads, besides some comparative contemporary photographs, it's possible to highlight the degree of construction, instruction and contradiction embedded through dress in the Ireland represented in our boys. And so what I'm aiming to show is how confusions and contradictions in the adult agendas of politics and religion, gender and class, modernity and Irish revival, were directly projected into the realm of children's formation in garments ranging from kilts and suits through tailoring and netwear, to shirt collars and shoes. However, no confusion in the following story. This is from an early foundational, it's November 1914, so it's, I think, maybe the second edition. And this story is called A Captain's Son and it's crystal clear. It strives to illuminate illuminate the tectonic differences between the true cultures of Ireland and Britain, blurred by the similarities of language and dress that only mask their deep differences of spirit. The hero of the tale is this patriotic Turlock O'Brien, son of an officer in Queen Victoria's army, who's now retired to his country estate in Ireland, who, quote, a thoroughgoing Irishman in his fashion, a hater of English society life, and a lover of his native land as a place to live in, yet cherished a chivalrous royal loyalty to the sovereign lady in whose army he had served. Now, age 14, this tarlock was sent much against his will to an English boarding school, where he's treated with a kind of good-natured contempt by those superior young gentlemen. But slowly, Turlock's own innate nobility converts his peers towards admiration, helped by his stirring tales from Irish history and lore. The assertion of difference developed through the story comes to a head on Prize Day at the end of the school year, when a select coterie of four boys, including Turlock and his arch-rival, George Augustus Trevelyan, are entered in the elocution prize... The poem selected for the occasion was Ye Mariners of England, a piece against which Turlock's national inclination rebelled. On the appointed day, the spacious hall filled with parents, rich merchants, lawyers, doctors and colonels. George Trevelyan came onto the stage, dressed in a most elegant fashion, delivered a wonderful interpretation in silvery tones, convincing everyone that Turlock had met his Waterloo, especially given that when called to recite he failed to appear. Number four, Master Turlock O'Brien. Another painful pause. At last, the door of the dressing room opened. And out walked Turlock with slow and graceful step, his head thrown slightly back and took a stand near the edge of the platform. A fine, beautifully proportioned boy with a countenance strikingly handsome and intellectual and eyes large and luminous, the audience looked upon him with surprise and admiration. He was dressed in ancient Irish costume, Saffron kilt, finely ornamented on the breast, caught at the shoulder by a magnificent Irish brooch and falling gracefully, as he stood there erect and dignified, he looked every inch at the son of an Irish king. Tarlack bowed and began. Thrice at the huts, of the, thrice at the huts of Fontenoy, the English column failed.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so his rendition instead of the Thomas Davis poem is a triumph. With a few superb gestures and with his large flashing eyes flashing fire, he held complete control over every man, woman and child in that hall. They feared his power. In both word and image then, obviously, the narrative projects a dream of Ireland reclaiming its own voice, unshackled from deference to English norms and authority. Turlock's exile to an English school is emblematic of an older generation's misguided loyalty to the oppressor. Turning the pages... A youthful reader could cheer to see Turlock, transformed from this rigid, constrained lackey, pinioned in a straitjacket of conformity, to an expressive, poetic hero, surging past the Union Jack proudly to declaim his own culture. Though rarely presented with such binary clarity, unfortunately, the alternate guises of Turlock O'Brien communicate the power of dress to express or dissemble the self. But also in relation to children, they vividly portrayed the potential of dress as a tool with which to control and direct childhood aspirations, by authorities ranging from the parental to the institutional. In ancient Irish costume, Turlach emulated (coughs) Cucullan, and the band of youths described in our boys as sons of chiefs and nobles, whom King Conor had assembled at his palace. Boys all aglow with exhilarating exercise, their long hair floating in the breeze, bound around the temples with bright-coloured bands of silk on which strung ornaments of gold. Their varied-hued tunics, as huddled together they now defended their goal, all formed a picture of such brilliant colouring, so instinct with life in its most joyous expression, that Satanta stood rooted to the spot with wonder and delight. This winning image of Celtic boyhood was clearly aimed to appeal to the readers of our boys and to support what Flanagan describes as nationalist Ireland's desire to establish a distinctive national character, as different as possible from that of its former ruler. Emblazoned across the first cover of *Our Boys* is a papal blessing beneath the masthead. The masthead itself, abounding in Celtic interlace, in striking contrast to this. Is Sorry, so the yeah, so we see the *Our Boys all adorned in Celtic interlace, but in striking contrast. A wholly modern idiom marks the drawing of the three boys. Despite being contained within a quasi-Gothic trefoil and shamrock's redolent of St. Patrick and the Trinity, they're perfectly modern. The boys, dark and glossy-haired, the two elder ones read to the youngest. And though seemingly an inconsequential decorative motif, this drawing, maintained through years of subsequent editions, represents in concentrated form ideas fleshed out in the magazine's content in advertisement, images, stories and editorial. Seen together, this trio can be understood as a construction of the normative progress of a boy through the three ages of youth. In marked contrast to the colourful, unfettered and youthful vigour of the Cucullin stories, the two elder boys here are firmly suited in dark tailored wool, a key signifier of masculine authority, and starched white linen, almost a litmus test of cleanliness respectable status and social inclusion. Thus, the boys' attire here here, not only presents the appearance of impeccable civility, but in its constricting cut and its firm and giving construction, actually regulates bodily movement to within a civil range. The names given to male suits in Ireland reveal the extent to which the norms of gentlemanly behaviour were culturally constructed as emanating from England, the advertising content in Our Boys supported Irish manufacture, and that included the London suit, which was made in Cornmarket, while the Rugby and Eaton suits were offered from McBurney & Co. in Aston Key. In the centre of this trio, it's the eldest boy who's in the middle, and he wears a collar and tie cut just like a man's, as it was expected that from about his mid-teens, a boy's aspirations and behaviour would be shaped by forces of education, religion, family and and by dress itself, to emulate those of his father. Earlier, between the ages of about seven and ten, boys were, were expected to begin this process of shaping up, and to this end were dressed in a garment deriving from the Norfolk jacket, of the sort one here by the fellow on the left. He's the middle, the middle boy. The Norfolk was designed originally as an adult shooting jacket, with pleats at the shoulders which you can see at the back of him. The two boys have come off the front of the cover are now on the editor's page, and he's the fellow on the little on the right here. And you can see the pleats at the back of his jacket, which are designed to allow freer arm movement. Halfway between gentlemanly tailoring and county activities, the Norfolk suit was widely adopted for the schoolboy, an adult man in training. Meanwhile, his continued youth was denoted by the Eton Collar, a broad white starch band always worn outside the suit lapel. Again, more than an incidental sartorial whim, the Eton collar is in fact congruent with institutional aspirations for the moulding of boys in values of uprightness and self-control. It's introduced into boys' dress at about the 1870s, and it finds a parallel in the contemporary 1875 edition of Christian politeness, which stressed the deportment of the head. It says, the head should be held erect, It should not be turned giddily from side to side. In conversation, we should pay attention to its motion. The brother's moral imperative is given material form in the stiff white collar reaching high on the neck, regulating head movement, while recording any laxity or infraction on its gleaming white surface. This instructive alignment of manners, deportment and Christian virtue emanates not only from the Christian brothers, but also, for example, Example from poet Catherine Tynan's Little Book of Manners. We, are as, we who are his followers should try to follow our Lord in his gentleness. Gentleman, gentry, gentlehood, all have the same derivation. The words have nothing to do with accidents of riches, rank or birth. The, ber- the barefoot boy can be, and very often is in this island of ours, a gentleman. Against this, however and at variance with the barefoot boys in the idea, it is the suited and well-shod boy who's presented as the ideal of Irish boyhood. Barefoot children remained not uncommon uh, well into the independence years, regularly evident in the photographic record, but rare in children's literature. Even when specifically described in the text, the accompanying illustration, in its cleverly contrived ambiguity, Betrays a deep reservation against visually enfranchising the barefooted, even those lovingly described by Porrock Pierce in The Wayfarer, where it says, Children with bare feet upon the sands of some ebbed sea, or playing on the streets of little towns in Connaught. The accompanying image, however, effectively occludes the child's feet, cutting off one below the ankle and masking the other behind Pierce's leg whose cast shadow manages to suggest a decent long stocking dressing the boy. Against Pierce's shining shoe leather, actual bare feet might have been too strong a contrast. Shoes and boots were among the most expensive item of dress, and though offered widely for sale sale second-hand, were nonetheless still beyond the reach of many. In Dublin Tenement Life, Kevin Kearns records Peggy Piggott, a teacher at Rutland Street School for 40 years, who recalls shoes were very bad, and they cut a player's cigarette box and put that on the soles. Many children had no shoes at all and ran barefoot through the rough cobblestone streets during the dead of winter. By contrast, the boys' outfits stipulated for attendance at Patrick Pierce's St Enda's School included two pairs of walking boots or shoes, one pair of football boots, and one pair of house shoes. It also stipulated that each boarder should come provided with at least two suits of clothes one of which should be dark in colour, three flannel day shirts, a dozen collars, six pairs of socks or stockings, a dozen pocket handkerchiefs, three flannel sleeping suits. And all clothes should, and other articles should be, as far as possible, of Irish material and manufacture. It's suggested that parents should dress their boys in the Irish kilt, which, apart from its claims as a distinctly national form of dress, provides an economical, hygienic and becoming costume for boys. Here it's interesting to note in the Guide for Clothes that uh, while the woolen kilt is recommended on the grounds of national distinction, equal weight is placed on its attractive appearance, competitive cost and hygienic properties. Hygiene, health and exercise became almost a cult through the 1920s and 30s and like the boys gardening at St Endes, required an accompanying relaxation in dress. Thus, in his woolen jerseys, like these lads, it is in fact... The smallest of these three boys, who's the harbinger of many of the qualities that were to radically redefine 20th century dress, informality, mobility, utility and democracy. Within conservative and respectable circles, relaxed dress and jerseys had until then been the dress only for small children, for adult underwear, fishermen or the sports field. But developing ideas about health, exercise and democracy saw several garments transitioning from sports to everywhere, everyday wear, including the blazer and flannel trousers. Originally worn for cricket and later golf, each retained a gentlemanly air of sporting leisure. But I, by the 1920s, both had become the official and unofficial uniform of schoolboys in England, and by 1938, even that of Murphy, the schoolboy character in Our Boys. An associated development of of relaxation and modernity in the 20s and 30s was the wider adoption of the open neck shirt. While the photographic record documents its rapid adoption by boys of all ages, instructional and promotional imagery resisted change. Advertisements for boys outfitters continued to show formally dressed, suited and booted boys. The interests of both the established clothing businesses would be threatened by the promotion of a more casual style, and likewise, allowing a visible relaxation of social conventions would discomfort and undermine the conservative agenda. Even when very young and out fishing, or catching well there he is fishing, or catching leprechauns, small boys <laughs> small boys are depicted in soft collar and tie. To the conservative mind, the new relaxed modes were seen as slovenly. So not surprisingly, any of these new freedoms of democracy and informality met countervailing energies in a drive towards control, regulation and uniformity, emanating from the established authorities of church, state and educators. While each of these overtly celebrated independence, that generally meant political and national, not personal self-definition. As varieties of school uniform increasingly identified Irish private education, other schools adopted just key elements, such as the school cap or the school tie. And two photographs from the Christian brothers might be evidence of their effectiveness. This is a 1934 photo of uh, nine or ten-year-old boys at O'Connells school, schools displaying quite a diverse mix of coloured suits, single-breasted, double-breasted, shirt and tie, open collars and knitted jerseys. One year later, the class are presented in their best for confirmation photograph, Order Reigns, not only through the unifying confirmation suit, but also the disappearance of hairstyles and colour under the crested school cap. A uniform ribbon helps to unite the diversity of colour suit, cut and fabric. In this decade of widespread hardship, the aim of regimented conformity is most economically attained by these simple unifying devices. What remains, of course, is the contradiction between the Christian brothers avowed celebration of the variety and colour of Celtic youth in Our Boys, and the opposing proposition of the youth in their care as a force to be uniformly moulded in dress, education and outlook. So while the O'Connell schoolboys acquired their new caps, and indeed the boys at St Enders got new caps in the 1930s, um, our boys Murphy soon lost his. In 1932, Finnefall had come to power partly on a platform of... uh, Employing Irishmen in Ireland to grow our food, make our clothes and provide the materials for our houses, instead of getting that work done for us by foreigners in other countries. This drive to support Irish manufacturers woven into the schoolboy story, with the hero no longer clad in pipe blazer, crested cap and striped tie, but here in the distinctive model of an Irish tweed suit. Any implications of provinciality countered here by the association with air travel. But as Finnafall sought to finally realise in Irish Ireland through policies of legislation, taxation and embargo, they were swamped by the unstoppable forces of modernity, advancing through systems from communication and transport to the consuming power of cinema. Ancient Irish dress, as well as Victorian manners and modes, lost out to cinematic visions and modern modes of masculinity and heroism. So, in summary, to an extent... When in 1914 the Christian Brothers presented Turlock O'Brien's personal crisis of identity as an emblem of the national struggle, almost mirrored again later in the change in um, The Schoolboy, so when they presented Turlock's crisis of national identity as an emblem of the national struggle, they seemed unaware that it just as well characterised their own institutional dilemma of how to express a distinctive national heroic spirit while conforming to the norms of middle-class respectability, essential for employment and social mobility in a transforming modern era, national Irish dress had indeed formed a familiar part of political and public discourse prior to 1916. But in the years following independence, this drive dissipated, and an Our Boys cover of July 1922, perhaps unintentionally, expresses its decline. At this pivotal moment, just before the establishment of the Free State, the the sketch here rather hollowly attempts to align the spirit of ancient Ireland with the vigour of modern youth, in this selection of very poorly drawn boys, feebly cheered on by a leader in a kilton broth. However, in 1927, the outright abandonment of any declaration of difference seems almost lamentable. Only five years after the founding of the Free State, there's almost nothing here to distinguish the magazine as Irish in dress, typography or ornament. Here, support for the boy athletes comes from a line of besuited school chums whose leader sports cricket flannels and blazers and waves a school cap. But in 1935, national pride is reasserted (laughs) in this great modern inspirational form, this gripping cover, Here, a jersey-clad hurler steps out of the Celtic interlace as the contemporary incarnation of Cúchulain, echoed behind him in a spear and breastplate, in a circular shield frame. In this powerfully conceived design, printed in navy and flame orange, a convincing image of the Irish youth hero is realised. Internationally modern, yet connected with native history, it enshrines the Celtic past as a a spiritual heritage, without trampling the liberating modernity of the present. It equates the unfettered body with antiquity, the hero hurler a rediscovery of the mythic freedom of Cúculon. Projecting a modern athleticism, the jersey and shorts escapes any suggestion of costume or fancy dress. Hurling being so unmistakably Irish did not need the support of Gaelic attire. Thus, the theatre of sport made possible an alignment of ideals both real and imagined. Celtic heroism and tradition masculinity health modernity and the appearances of cohesion and equality but this was on the playing field and in every and in the but in the everyday arena as opposed to the playing field dress had to contend with the more irreconcilable forces of real life shifting fashion the market domesticity cost not to mention social conformity status and competition the inescapable reality of social distinction is evidenced everywhere in the advertising. In this ad, which I'll we'll end on, it's Rev- Revington's in Tralee is, is um, advertising. Remember, boys, the importance of your clothing when you have to keep up appearances with your schoolfellows. Revington's cater for the most fashionable people. It would seem then that undermining the Christian brothers and the nation in their attempt to forge Celtic Christian virtues from wool and linen, shirts and trousers, shoes and boots was that the very materials they sought to coerce were in fact being harnessed and consumed for social advantage and for self-realisation.
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast from Art and Reality, the role of visual culture in the post-independent state. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018. and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art History and Cultural Policy and NAIVAL, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was organised by Roisin Kennedy and funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online.